And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will we be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen. Well, you can't choose your parents in life, can you? You reach a certain age sometimes in life where you wish that you could choose your parents, uh, but you can't. And the truth be told, as parents sometimes, you wonder how your children maybe wound up the way that they are. And you'd like to think that, well, you know, I don't think that that came from me. But the funny reality is that actually all of the challenging things that we see in our children come from the reality that they are very much like us. It does come from me. And in fact, I find it to be disproportionately true that the negative traits seem to come from me, uh, my sons look an awful lot like me. As Christians, we are God's children chosen from out of the world, adopted by God, not based on a brilliant performance or our sparkling personalities, but despite that. And just as we can tell in life, oftentimes, children's parents, because of that family resemblance, The children of God are to be known because they look like their father. John's simple idea here in these verses this morning is that God's children look like him. If you look there at those last couple of verses from chapter 2, they really fit with these first 10 verses of of chapter 3. Of course, the Verses are not inspired by God. That's, that's people's best attempts to kind of group and categorise the material. And here it's failed. It should really be grouped together here with chapter 3. The idea we see here in these last couple of verses is that we become what we worship. When you really look up to someone or admire them, you start sort of moulding yourself after them, don't you? 
This happens, doesn't it? You see this with young children. It's very sweet, isn't it? You see them copying their parents. And, you know, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's really embarrassing when it's the bits you wish they wouldn't copy. But they copy you because they love you, they admire you. And then, as time goes by, parents become less cool, and it's not parents that children are imitating anymore. It's other people. Uh, This is a picture here of Robert Plant. If you are from Gen Z, uh, he was a singer of a band called Led Zeppelin. And growing up, I thought he was just the coolest. Um, And that really is the only rational explanation I can give you for this monstrosity on the next slide. This is a picture of young me attempting, in my own mind at least, to look something like Robert Plant. Uh, I'm not really sure that I quite hit the right note. But when we look up to someone, we try to mould ourselves around them. We become what we worship. And that's John's point here, that those who know Jesus, the righteous one, the one upon whom our hope is set, we live righteously by abiding in him. John starts here, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He starts, and now, and that tells us that there's a new movement in the message that John is bringing, and yet it's also following on from what he said in chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him. It's interesting that John talks here first about position and then performance. First, abide in him before he talks about what you might do when you're abiding in him. Because how you live is most of all shaped by where you place yourself. And so he says, abide in him. John's letter follows his gospel, and he picks up many of the themes that he used in that gospel account. So much so that Martin Luther would say that first John should really follow along from John's gospel. So much is it focused on the gospel that he brought there. And John here is picking up a theme of Jesus's that he had recorded in that gospel, that idea of abiding. Listen to Jesus' words here. This is from chapter 15 of John's gospel. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see that idea that Jesus is sharing here, that John is sharing at the beginning of his letter to, that your performance comes from your position. Abide in Christ Jesus and you will bear fruit like him too. It's much like he said before, walk in the light. And we said that really what he's getting at is walk close to Christ. Abide in him, he says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And there's two ideas in that verse. I wonder if you can see them there. There's a positive and there's a negative, isn't there? There's a positive, something to have that is good, so that when he appears, we may have 
confidence, and the word there actually is speaking of, that we may be able to speak boldly. There's a positive, isn't there? That we may have confidence, we may speak freely, but also there's a negative, isn't there? That we may not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That we may not be ashamed. It's the positive, that we may speak freely, and then the negative, that we may not hide away from him. I wonder if as you hear that and read those verses, whether your mind is taken back to Adam and Eve. Mine is. What did they do in the aftermath of their sin? What was their first response and reaction? Wasn't it to hide from God in shame? To not be able to speak freely? So one commentator, Colin Cruz, puts it, if people remain in Christ that is following the teaching that they heard from the beginning and that the anointing, the Holy Spirit, continues to teach them, then when Jesus Christ appears and judges his people, they may be confident and unashamed before him. The root of your confidence in your standing before God should come from your being close to Jesus. And then look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Our salvation comes from Jesus' righteousness on our behalf, that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. John, in the last chapters, he encouraged them not to sin, but he said, if you do, you have an advocate, Christ Jesus, the righteous. And we said that the hope was Not that you will be able to perform and no longer sin anymore, but that when you do, you have an advocate who defends you before the Father. And the hope of that defense case that Jesus puts together in that heavenly sort of courtroom scene that John is imagining is not some hidden evidence that's been uncovered by the Netflix documentary team that there was a miscarriage of justice, that after all, you really weren't so bad as God had said. Maybe God had just been caught on a bad day, that actually you were good after all. No, the case would be Jesus was righteous. Where you were not, he was, and the case would stand on Jesus being perfectly righteous. That in that moment, what is considered and what is accepted is Christ's record in your place. That was the hope. And he's doing a similar thing here. If you know Christ the righteous, then you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Our salvation comes from his righteousness on our behalf. And so if that is so, and if that is who we know, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And that word practice is an important one in this passage. It's a key word. You'll see John contrast what we know with what we practice and what we say with what we practice because what you do here shows who you are that you will know the children of God by the way that they live their life John's point is we become what we worship that those who know Jesus will live righteously by abiding in him 
And John will develop that idea in verses 4 to 10. But first, there's a little diversion to think about this idea of what it means to be born of him. Do you see he ends there, verse 29, with that idea? Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And this is the idea he picks up in verses 1 to 3. And the idea here is that God is a proud parent. He picks up here, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's an amazing expression of God's love, isn't it? See what kind of love he gives that he calls us children, that the Father happily identifies us as his children, despite, not because, of what we're like. We are children he's chosen. We are much like, in many ways, the dogs from Lady and the Tramp, the dogs that nobody wants, who are just there in the pound forever. And yet, he chose to adopt us. We've said that First John here is picking up many of the themes of John, his gospel, and this picks up from chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, his introduction there. To all who did receive him, he's talking of Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Do you see what he's saying there as well? How do you become a child of God? How do you get to that place? How do, you, how do you get to the place that God would call you happily, proudly, child? Well, look at what John says. We become God's children not by nature. Not by our self-discipline. Not by our self-identifying, but by God's will. Children of God who were born not of blood, by nature, nor of the will of the flesh, your own self-discipline and self-determination, nor of the will of man, not yourself identifying, but of God. And so we are. There's two amazing realities. There's the reality that God would call us that, but John also just wants to remind us there's a reality underneath that calling. It's not just that God calls us children, but we're not really. And so we are. And God's acceptance here is put in stark contrast with the world's rejection, isn't it? Look at the rest of verse 1. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. That they don't know him. And this is another bit of shorthand for John that goes back to what he said in his gospel. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. He says, the true light... Again, speaking of Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They don't know you as the children of God because they didn't know him. But how was it that they didn't know him? Well, John wants to be clear here that it's rejecting somebody that you have seen. The problem for the world is not, not recognizing someone they've never seen. It's rejecting someone they had seen. The rejection comes not from a lack of information, not from a lack of exposure. The problem isn't a head problem. 
but it's that they didn't want to receive him. It's a problem of the heart, isn't it? They don't know you because they didn't know him. And then there's a now and a not yet in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, and he's speaking of Jesus, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We are God's children, but we are not now what we one day will be. And there's three really important things just to pull from this one verse here. Firstly, the goal of discipleship is not gaining enough confidence in my ability to save myself, but becoming like Christ. It's not gradually becoming less and less reliant upon God, more and more able to fix myself. It is becoming like Christ Jesus. Secondly, becoming like Christ happens through Christ Imposing a few rules on myself really isn't going to make me much like him at all. And so thirdly, and maybe this is the most important thing to take from it, you only reach perfection, the perfection of Christ, at his return. Because of his return. We will see him as he is, and then we will be like him. Because we see him. Until that point, and without that moment, you'll not be like him, but will reach perfection at his return. And that is a direct counter to the false teachers. Do you remember? Remember some of the things they've been saying, these spiritual snobs, believe they're perfect already, telling people they no longer sinned, unlike the church, and so they left it. And how had they achieved this? Well, they'd achieved it, of course, through their superior work ethic, their superior discipline and intellect and spirituality, their revelations. And John says, no, they haven't. No, they haven't. They look down on their Christian brothers and sisters and they've left them behind. They've, at very best, traded sins. Maybe they don't do some things, but what they do do is that they are arrogant about their own performance and self-sufficiency. And John has already said in chapter 1, they are delusional and deceitful. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. They're delusional, but they're also deceitful. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is, give you a fancy word, over-realized eschatology. Eschatology means thinking about the end times. Let me put it really simply, everyday English. Too much now, not enough, not yet. Because the truth is, we are freed from the penalty of sin. The Spirit's help has broken the power of sin to control us entirely. But we still battle the presence of sin. And we thought much about that last week in chapter 2. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he's pure, verse 3 tells us. God's children are revealed in that God's children want to live like the God that they worship. 
And so, the future hope of our full sanctification, verse 2, what will happen when Jesus returns, it will be like him, because we'll see him as he is, that full sanctification, that full holiness in Christ at his return is a present motivation for us now. God is a proud father calling us his children, having chosen us despite who we are, not because of it. That's what we see here. Now, in verse 29 and verse uh, 3 of chapter 3, we've, uh, they've said that we become what we worship. And now John expands on this in his main section in verses 4 to 10. And here there is an eye test. I told you before, one of my uh, guilty pleasures is wrestling. And one of the tests to become a wrestler used to be something called the airport test. They do much flying between different airports around different cities from show to show. And there was a very simple airport test. And it's this. If you put that person in an airport lounge, would they be turning everybody's heads? Would they be looking like a gladiator? If they look like a wrestler, then maybe, just maybe, they have a shot at becoming one. And here, there is an eye test of sorts for Christians. What does their life look like? Verse 4 here. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And that is a natural opposite to verse 3, isn't it? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he's pure. But what does John mean? Because this is translated in different ways. If you're following in the NIV, it may just say anyone who sins. If you're reading King James, it could say anyone who commits sin. In the ESV that's printed in front of you, it will say makes a practice of sinning. Or in the ASV, it says doeth sin. So what does it mean? The word basically means to commit or to do. But the word here is shaped by its tense. And that's something that you won't see in the English translation. This word, meaning to commit, to do, is in the present continuous active tense. What does that mean? You don't really need to know that jargon. But what it means in the end is that this should be translated something like the one who commits and is continually committing sin. So that the ESV makes a practice of sinning is a helpful, more readable explanation that gets to the meaning. And in verse 4, in verse 8 and verse 9, where it says makes a practice of, it is the exact same tense and the exact same meaning. And in fact, even where he says keeps on sinning in verse 6 and verse 9, I think John just gets bored of literally using the exact same phrase, so he uses another that means the exact same thing anyway. What's the point of me saying that? The point is, it is not saying if you sin, you don't know God. You do sin, and you do have an advocate who saves you. But that's not the meaning, okay? The meaning is, if you stubbornly dig in to keep sinning, making a way for that sin, no effort to change, no shame, no repentance, making a practice of sinning. And it's really, really important this morning that you realize that that's what's being said so that you don't misapply it 
And people aren't crushed. Crushed under an unrealistic expectation that it's saying anyone who ever sins, which John is not saying to you. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And look, Jesus came because of sin, didn't he? Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared, he's speaking of Jesus, to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Jesus came because of the damage of sin to reverse its destruction. And he could do so because he was sinless. So if that's what Christ is like, how can his followers have any other attitude than hatred towards sin? And so John has a logical conclusion in verse 6, doesn't he? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If you live like this, then you haven't really seen him. You haven't really known him. So he says, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. It's a point he's already made, chapter 2, verse 29, and 3, verse 3. But now it is also about this ongoing, continuous pattern of behavior, just as he's spoken of those who make a practice of sinning. And again, helpful, I think, to pause and to say, John is not saying that this is people who only ever and always do what is good, what is right, what is perfect. That's impossible. He's already said that we do sin. Anyone who says they don't sin hasn't known him, hasn't seen him, is lying. No, it, but it is those who try, whose effort and energy is in the direction of living out of the light of Christ. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, verse 8 says, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And you notice there now there's two identifications, isn't there? We have been identified as God's children. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. There are also those who are children of the devil. And what changes? What takes us from being from one father to another? Well, John tells us in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There is a new birth. John had mentioned it previously in verse 29 there, a few verses before. And he comes back to it again. And again, to understand what John is on about here, we need to return to his gospel. Because he's again using a shorthand for something he's already written on. Here is Jesus speaking in John chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. Coming to truly know Jesus is described here as a new birth, 
And it happens because of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God grants us new birth. And because he is in us, the power of sin as a constant practice is broken, albeit its presence remains and frustrates at times, doesn't it? The new birth means that though you may still sin, you will not keep on sinning, you will not make a practice of sinning in the same way. You won't be perfect, but there should be something of a difference between your past and between yourself and the world. By this it is evident, John says, verse 10, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That little phrase, children of the devil, might feel a hard statement, perhaps. I think that owes to the fact that we often think that the devil is connected always to heinous sins. And yet the devil's fundamental nature actually is pride, self-righteousness, opposition to God, Christless morality, Christless good works. And that's what we've said these false teachers are all about. And so I hope you might be sensing that John seems to be implying that this is the false teachers he has in mind because it is. And we know it by the way he ends that verse there by saying, nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. That has been the primary charge that he's brought against these false teachers, that they are not loving their Christian siblings. It's a simple test to find God's children. Do they look like the Father? Because Christians should live like the God that they love. The children of God are known because they look like their Father. The children of God are to practice righteousness as we see it from our Father. But how does that happen? Let me finish with three simple encouragements. Firstly, be born again. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or it could be put, or born from above, born by God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I just want to ask for a second here, what did you contribute to your birth? Nothing. The child and the father really don't contribute anything to the birth, do they? It's the mum who does the work. And what do you do in being born again? The answer again is nothing. So if you are, great. That is done, and you didn't do anything. And if you're not, or you're not sure, it's as simple as asking that God would do that for you. But be born again. Secondly, abide in him. Our passage began, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Again, that's not so much about doing, is it? But where you are. Stay close to your Father. But how do you do that? But the place that God has definitively revealed himself is in his word, the Bible, isn't it? 
And we've said, and it's worth repeating again and again, that the Bible is first and foremost God's revelation of himself. It is not about you, it is about him. Again, Jesus says, recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Be born again, abide in him, and thirdly, do what you see in him. Just a few verses later in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He's again speaking to some false teachers, some highly religious Pharisees. You do what you've heard from your father, little f. He means the devil. As John calls these false teachers, children of the devil. And Jesus says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, capital F, the Father God in heaven. Do what you see. Try to copy what you see in your heavenly father. As you abide in him, learn what he's like and what he's done and let it shape your life. The children of God look like their father. So do what you see in him. But how will you be able to look like him if you don't know him? So abide in him. And this all happens if indeed God has reborn you. So be born again. Let's pray. And in a few moments, we'll respond to what we've heard here.